listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 110. This week, we bring you a discussion of my new book, Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. Michelle and I discuss social movements in the U.S. and why they're expanding now. But first, the news. If you are watching the Olympics this week, you may have noticed a few things about the soccer tournament. First, in a heartbreaking loss, the U.S. women went out in the quarterfinals against Sweden. Second, the U.S. men didn't even qualify for the games. This is just the latest outrage fueling the U.S. women's campaign for equal pay for equal work. Their loss is expected to hurt their campaign for equal pay, even though it is literally the first time ever that the women's team won't medal in the Olympics. And need I say it again? The men didn't even qualify, yet get paid much, much more. Last year, the women even brought in more revenue than the men, decimating one of the biggest arguments that USA Soccer and Couch Potato Well Actually types on Twitter have made for their continued lack of equal pay, that they just don't bring in the cash. It's what the market will bear, the argument goes, despite the fact that there is almost no market for any of the sports that we are suddenly shrieking about this week at the Olympics. And despite the fact that the U.S. has invested heavily in men's soccer while making the women play on AstroTurf in often really shoddy conditions. In the World Cup last year, the U.S. men went out in the round of 16. The women won the whole thing. For that, they made four times less money. Not per game. Total. The entire women's team got two million for taking the cup. Back at home, they returned to the National Women's Soccer League, which is in its record fourth year for a professional women's soccer league in the U.S., but they still just make an average of $15,000 a season and are still expected to be the best in the world. A court denied them the right to strike this year in their ongoing struggle with USA Soccer for a fair collective bargaining agreement that includes equal pay with the men, taking away their most potent weapon in their ongoing struggle. They have resorted to wearing t-shirts that say hashtag equal pay. They have made this central to their Olympic struggle, and unfortunately their loss in overtime in penalty kicks will be held against them in a fight that really... It's just not fair. So we will continue to keep you updated on women's soccer, their fight for equal pay, and uh, their continued dominance of the sport, this one loss notwithstanding. Can you tell I'm a fan? I am. But still. Equal pay for equal work? It's only fair. So India just passed a new child labor law that should be a reason for human rights advocates to be celebrating, but instead, it's the bosses who are cheering. Why? Because while the law is supposed to restrict the exploitation of children overall, activists are very concerned that it's actually legalizing and even promoting certain forms of child labor. So how'd that happen? The law that was just passed seeks to restrict child labor for 6 through 14 year olds by ensuring that they must be uh, enrolled in school, which is a good thing, of course. Um, But the law contains a massive loophole. Um, It allows certain low-wage industries to continue to employ children if the employer is deemed a family-based business. Now, the way the economy is structured in India, there are actually many artisanal and workshop-based workplaces doing things like brick making, rolling cigarettes, uh, you know, farm work like tea harvesting that 
could be considered a form of family employment, broadly defined. But if there are children working in these enterprises, uh, the law essentially allows them to keep on exploiting children um, if they can prove that somehow they're doing it for mom and dad and not for some big evil anonymous boss. So um, through this loophole, many of the family and home-based workshops that uh, are contracting with larger employers doing piecework at home are going to continue to employ their children. And while there is technically a mandate for them to stay in school, many people fear that uh, in effect this will mean that children are ultimately not able to complete their educations. Um, see, many of these family businesses, um, they are doing you know, pretty basic artisanal type tasks, um, you know, such as weaving, but they also do things like stitching shoes. Uh, they also do things like, you know, working on textiles for large factories. Um, while much of this labor is not done for export, it very much does tie into the globalized economy in the sense that um, children, sadly, have a very distinct role in India's new neoliberal economic structure. Um, and the sad fact is that this law is supposed to be a part of the Modi government's supposed opening up to the global economy. Um, he has been trying to modernize um, India's industries and has been trying to uh, close some of the profound inequalities that are currently holding back India's growth. Um, but instead, advocates say that it only ensures that on India's path to industrial modernization, uh, the law will allow India to preserve these profoundly regressive forms of labor exploitation. And while these children may be working so-called traditional jobs, and it does restrict certain extremely hazardous forms of child labor, like mining work, and it does, uh, to its credit, bring, the law, bring India's uh, labor laws more in line with standards codified in international protocols, such as the International Labor Organization's Convention on Minimum Age and Convention 182 on the Worst Forms of Child Labor. Um, those are all standards that India should uh, be complying with, but the problem is that the way the law is structured, restricting child labor on this very superficial level um, will ultimately continue to end up with an economy where a lot of kids' childhoods are stunted because they're too busy working. So I am here with a friend of the show, Nasser Anmahit. She is an organizer with the News Guild. And uh, Nas, tell us what the heck is going on with this Law 360 uh, organizing drive. Uh, well, a lot, actually. Um, <laughs> it's uh, It's been an interesting few weeks. Um, so this is a group of uh, legal reporters, editors, news assistants and news apprentices, about 130 editorial employees. They basically started their organizing drive back actually in the winter um, around December, January. Um, you know, they reached out to the news guilds, um, really, you know, angry over the uh, non-compete that Law 360 had imposed on them. Um, this is a non-compete that is really you know, meant to prevent employees from going to other um, news sites, in particular Law 360's competitors like Bloomberg PNA and Reuters. And we actually had a yeah. member at Reuters, the Guild represents Reuters, and we had a member there who was fired um, because the company found out about her non-compete. So 
that really initiated yeah. the organizing drive. And, uh, you know, these folks did the long, hard work of organizing, uh, speaking to their colleagues over months and months' time. We went public, and the company immediately uh, started an anti-union campaign. They hired Jackson Lewis, obviously notorious union-busting law firm, um, and LRI, Labor Relations Institute, uh, for um, basically all of their union busing, which um, they had about two and a half weeks with the employees, pulling them into really just nonstop uh, captive audience meetings, flying in yeah. LexisNexis executives to meet with the editorial employees. Uh, it's owned by LexisNexis. So yeah. um, it's, been a, it's been a tough few weeks for them. Uh, for our folks, but they've they've really you know stayed very solid and strong throughout the meetings. Uh, the election yeah. was August 10th, and mm-hmm. we get the results on uh, on August Excellent. 24th. Yeah, and so other than the, the non-competes, what are some of the other issues in the workplace that they were um, organizing around? Well, this is the legal news service. One of the biggest issues for them really is the crushing workload. You know, they like to call it kind of a digital sweatshop. Um, you know, we mm-hmm. hear this often. And, um, you know, these are folks that are have very, very little time to do anything else but put out stories. The general assignment reporter, reporters have a four-story quota per day. Um, you know, that gives them very little time to take a lunch yeah. break, take a break. Uh, it essentially yeah. means, you know, they have about two hours to complete a story. And so they're going through really dense legal material, um, yeah. it's, it's a really difficult job, and so the crushing yeah. workload, I'd say, is probably one of the biggest the biggest things. Obviously, salaries are not, you know, up to par with the competitors, so that's an issue. Um, uh, really significant issues with the editorial process, some really questionable editorial practices that, uh, that the employees really want to have a say in, and not feeling like they can weigh in at all with their uh, their assistant managing editor and management, and so definitely editorial input is, is a big a big issue for them that they're looking to address with the collective bargaining agreement. Yeah, um, and yeah, I mean these must be to be a legal reporter, you need some level of of legal training, I assume, right? Well, actually, no. This is you know this is one of the draws actually of the job is that. Um, you know, reporters, you know, they need a it's a green journalism obviously, but um Law Three Sixty provides a good amount of on the job training for new uh-huh. hires so that oh, okay. you know, they're trained in how to kind of go through all of these really dense legal documents. And so um you yeah. know, it's interesting because this is really the the thought that, you know, they provide this training and they through this non compete yeah. they really you know, try to hold on to these employees. Um yeah. And, and yeah. you know, what was so nefarious really about the non-compete and why the Guild is so intent to push back on this within journalism is just that, you know, we're, we have employers that are claiming that the, the news gathering process, right, the sources yeah. and um, following leads and, and just the actual process of reporting the news is, you know, proprietary in the same way that non-competes are applied to, you know, so many other industries. Um Right. And so, you know, they were getting away with this for, for quite some time before we reached out to the Attorney General's office and eventually uh, the Labor Bureau of Attorney General Schneiderman's office. What are sort of, you know, next steps other than waiting for the results of the election? I mean, you assume probably that if this is this contentious, the contract fight is also going to be contentious. 
Well, I think, um, you know, I think that this was really uh, an interesting campaign because, as, you know, as you know and you've covered, um, you know, this follows a wave of, you know, digital organizing uh, right. that's happened in the last year and a half, two years. And I think that, yeah, there were these string of organizing drives that happened, you know, a year ago, really, where yeah. which were very exciting, but I think that it was um, very atypical in the sense that, None of those drives were met with really hostile employer opposition. We saw a little bit with Al Jazeera, we saw that management pushed back, but they didn't hire anti-union consultants. And so this right. campaign has really, you know, shown, uh, I think a lot of, a lot of journalists uh, and a lot of other folks that have been following this have shown them what really the rest of, uh, you know, the, the workforce has to, to deal with what American workers yeah. are faced with the majority of the time when they try to unionize. They are met with anti-union yeah. consultants and strong employer opposition. So I think this yeah. is really important for folks to see. Obviously, the interest on social media around this campaign, I think, was really was really nice to see. And I think it was a little bit of a an education for a lot of people and just how difficult oftentimes it is, you know, and, and how important it is for the workers to be strong and united and well-organized so that when they are faced with employer opposition, they stay strong. And so we have no doubt that that strength is going to carry over to the negotiating table. Um, yeah. You know, LexisNexis is a company that's doing very well. Lost 60 is doing very well. Um, and yeah. we're, you know, we're going to be fighting for some significant you know, gains in their terms and conditions of employment. Right-to-work laws have been taking hold in a number of states recently thanks to a bunch of legal victories that have been scored by right-wing groups and business associations trying to destroy the labor movement. But now the labor movement is pushing back with legal challenges of its own. The recent West Virginia court ruling seems to signal perhaps a shift in the political climate or at least the legal climate for labor unions to wage a court battle against right-to-work laws. Right-to-work laws have, of course, become a favorite weapon in the legal quiver of business associations and free marketeers um, because it allows them to create a legal mechanism that allows unions to be systematically eroded through financial assault. Um, The legal framework essentially restricts union activity in workplaces by curbing the closed shop model that compels all workers at a unionized workplace to contribute financially towards the union as part of the collective bargaining process. The right calls this an unfair mandatory unionization provision. Um, In reality, it's just a basic provision to ensure that the collective bargaining process that ultimately goes towards a contract that represents all workers at a workplace is paid for through the fair share uh, of all the workers. The judge in the West Virginia case issued a temporary injunction blocking the law. Uh, This comes on the heels of a similar ruling in Wisconsin in April, and the petition, which was brought by the AFL-CIO and other groups, um, essentially argues that instituting right to work would amount to, quote, an illegal taking of unions' property and resources. The basic idea, according to the AP, is that since unions have gone through the bargaining process and represented all the workers at a workplace, uh, regardless of each individual's workers' uh, union member status, since they're all represented, all of this takes place at a considerable cost to the union, and it's fair that the worker um, is asked to pay. Uh, Labor groups 
have consistently argued that you know their financing would be ultimately destroyed by right to work. Whether or not that's going to happen in reality um, has yet to be seen, but of course nobody wants to test that. And slowly, slowly, court victory after court victory has slowly been edging towards the Supreme Court. And the battle over whether right to work will prevail or whether union rights will prevail um, is sort of becoming this weird war of attrition. Um, the AFL-CIO, for its part, has announced that, that they hope that this opens up a new legal battlefront on the national level and makes it to the Supreme Court so they can settle this question once and for all. The AFL-CIO basically asked why the employee would ask, should I pay for something that the law requires be made available to me for nothing? Such a circumstance would naturally and predictably seriously burden a union's ability to recruit and retain members. Uh, so the West Virginia AFL-CIO will continue with this. So far, it's been a temporary injunction that has suspended the right-to-work law, but they ultimately want to turn that into a permanent ruling. And with any luck, we'll make it to the Supreme Court. And with even more luck, uh, it will be a full Supreme Court that will not have an anti-labor majority on it. So fingers crossed on both those fronts. Now is the moment we've all been waiting for. Without further ado, we have our very own Sarah Jaffe. She has come out with a new book, but of course, if you are a loyal, belabored listener, you knew that already. And of course, if you are a consistent listener of the podcast, then uh, Sarah really needs no introduction at this point. So I will cut straight to the chase. I got to put on my objective interviewer hat here and sat across from her and asked her some probing questions about her new book. It's called Necessary Trouble. First of all, Having been thrilled to have finally read the book I've heard so much about <laughs> nonstop for the last so oh two years. She's um, so sick of it. Yeah, no, no. It's um, it was anything but anticlimactic, and that's Aww. and that's that's no Thank small you. feat considering how how much our entire lives have been structured <laughs> around this final this final moment. Um, so why this book now? Other than the fact that it's been two damn years already. Um, oh my god, right? It, it's actually kind of crazy how perfect the timing is for this thing to be coming out, because it was um, really hard to actually sell it. And I was just talking about this with my agent the other day, that like if, if the Ferguson protests hadn't happened right as I was trying to convince a publisher that they wanted to um, give me some money so I could write this book, it wouldn't have happened, because people you know, two and a half years ago, just were like, what? What are you talking about? Social mm-hmm. movements? Like, that Occupy thing is over. Like, that's boring. Nah. Yeah. And now, like, everybody's like, hey, where did this Bernie Sanders guy come from? And why are all these people still mad? And, huh, what's going on? And why are there people camped out outside of City Hall a few blocks from where we're recording this? Um, so, yeah, I think, I think this moment sort of um, answers the question that I had to answer a lot two years ago which was that I think the financial crisis really changed something in how Americans perceive, I mean, how people across the world really, but this book is about the U.S. because that's where I am and that's what I know and because that book hadn't been written. And I think it really changed something in the way that people in the U.S. think about inequality and think about the economy and think about the world and their place in it and their relationship to power and who has it and who doesn't. Okay. So I understand that you 
had you anticipated, you sort of presaged this kind of ultimate I predicted moment. it all. Right. You were the Nostradamus of our time. Oh, but um, Definitely not. So do you feel like you were just kind of an early anticipator of what was about to go off? Or do you feel like the times have just eventually caught up with all of us? Which is to say, like, <laughs> to what extent were even you surprised by what ended up Oh, my God. Down? I'm constantly, constantly, constantly surprised. Like, I thought Occupy was going to turn into nothing. I thought it was going to be a protest that happened on a Saturday and go away. And it totally changed the way everybody talks about everything. Um, I think everybody in the labor movement was shocked when the Wisconsin protests went off in 2011, right? Like, even people who are very dedicated to making sure that public sector employees have collective bargaining rights did not think that 100,000 Wisconsinites would turn out to protest over public sector workers' collective bargaining rights. Um, You know, I did not think that we would see cities moving to $15 an hour as quickly as they have. I didn't think that we would see um, the level of like nationwide movement around Black Lives Matter back in the day, um, back in the day being, you know, right after the death of Trayvon Martin, when there were still a lot of protests. But the level to which these things have grown is is totally unexpected. Um, I certainly didn't think 12 million Americans would vote for a, you know, white-haired dude from Vermont who calls himself a socialist. Yeah, so I, I feel like I saw some things happening and saw some things changing, and at every turn they've been bigger and more significant than I thought they were going to be, mm-hmm. um, which is great, because it all added up to my book being bigger and more significant than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's uh, much better than being surprised the opposite direction. Yeah, it would have been really bad if that had happened. Yeah. Um, so drilling down to the individual subjects or the topics yeah. that you reported on, what then surprised you about the specific people or the specific movements you tried to profile? You know, one of the things that, like, we hear a ton about millennials, right, and how millennials are this and millennials are that, and it's absolutely true that, like, the people who are driving so many of these movements are millennials, um, whatever millennial means. Um, I'm still not sure if I am one or not. Um, yeah. I think we can't qualify as ancient we're like, millennials. Right. We're, we're like the on cusp. the cusp, right? Yeah. We're millennial cusp at age 36. Um, but, you know... I met a lot of people who are older, like people who were on the verge of retirement or, you know, would have liked to be retired by now, but can't because the, you know, economic crisis destroyed their savings and uh, they have no pension anymore because who has pensions anymore? And either some of them, you know, I talked to and they were like, you know, I went to some protests in the 60s and then I kind of settled down and I had my kids and I, you know, had my career and now everything is screwy again and I feel like I have to get involved. And other people had never been involved in anything, period, um, and are just getting involved now because they really feel like it hits them in a way that the 60s didn't feel like it hit them um, or that they were just a little too young for the 60s. And that was a super interesting thing to me. And I think some of the most compelling interviews in the book are actually with some of those people mm-hmm. because they have a really interesting relationship with the younger protesters. Um, I'm thinking of um, Nancy Daniel in Atlanta, who was um, got involved with Occupy Homes when her home was facing foreclosure. I'm thinking of Barbara Smalley McMahon in North Carolina, who... Um, was a, a pastoral counselor who got involved with Moral Mondays and then went to Ferguson and, you know, really felt like she had changed a lot about her relationship to her faith, which was a cornerstone of her life. This was her work. You know, these these people had these really compelling stories and these really 
open relationships with young people that I thought were really great and really belied the way that like the popular media is like millennials are selfish and lazy and older people all hate them. Yes. Um, so that's one of my favorite surprises. Yeah. Yeah. Um, better that than the traditional story of intergenerational strife that we always yeah, seem to rise and fall. I with. just don't think that that's where we're at right now, even though, um, it cer- certainly makes like an easy and compelling story. I just don't think it's true. Like, you know, the, the response that I see from young people toward, you know, baby boomers and whatever is basically just just happens when somebody writes a stupid op-ed. Right. Um, and, of course, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right, exactly. Ways. You write, like, a, a jerky op-ed in the, you know, the New York Times. You know, and then the kids are like, actually, um, our universities are 700 times more expensive than yours were, and we're all carrying, you know, an average of $35,000 in student debt. Actually, that's probably gone up since the last time I looked at that number. Um, and we can't get jobs, and we're working at McDonald's, and the minimum wage in most states hasn't gone up in, you know... 15 years and why again are we like selfish and and complaining Um, right so yeah but but that story really doesn't I think hold up in the real world in the same way yeah yeah to what extent then do you think that the people you were um talking to were themselves conscious that this was a historical moment or even as you um mentioned maybe kind of a a reckoning or, or some kind of uh you know Revisiting of some of those original themes that were broached in the 60s but were never really brought to full completion. You know, I think the comparison with the 60s is really interesting because I think that in the 60s, what happened at the end of everything is sort of everything split. And, you know, the feminists left the new left because it was sexist and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that things are kind of coming back together in a way that I think is really interesting right now. No, but I, I do think that there is a degree of that um, a lot of people would say things to me like, we can't go back, there's no this there's gotta be a new normal, the old normal was disease, that was Reverend David Girth in in St. Louis. Um, or, you know, also from St. Louis, Montega Simmons from the Organization for Black Struggle said, you know, it's not nineteen sixty four, it's nineteen fifty four, like we're at the beginning of this thing and we don't know what it's gonna become. I think there's a real sense that like normal is broken. And normal has to change. What that's going to look like, we're not sure yet. Um, You know, just this week or just last week, you know, the, the, or two weeks ago now, the Vision for Black Lives document came out where people are really starting to articulate like demands for a future that I think is, you know, that, that document is fascinating and amazing. And of course, I wish it had been around for me to include in the book, but it's great because I can reference it in all the press. Right, right. But yeah, I think there's a real sense that this is a moment where something has to give and something has to change. Yeah, which is interesting because in terms of some of the right-wing forces that you were talking to, mm-hmm. there was also this sense that the status quo would no longer hold, yeah. that things are breaking down, and a sense of like nostalgia threaded with kind of bitterness, at sort mm-hmm. of the downfall yeah. of that dream. So like, talk about yeah. how the forces on the left and the right to you had some parallels as well as some divergences. I think it's super interesting to think about this as a moment where people, you know, we we went with and stuck with the name Necessary Trouble after forever trying to come up with a title for this book, because I think that that's the sort of easiest and most obvious thing that people are are doing. They're embracing really disruptive protests. They're not just sort of having an orderly march in the street. They're, you know, shouting down a town hall or they're blocking a highway. And that is true on the right. And in fact, the Tea Party were the first ones to really do it after the financial crisis. Um, and they were doing it in, you know, I mean, Donald Trump has made Make America Great Again this thing. But that's really, 
encapsulates the sense of that, um, which is like the Tea Party sentiment is kind of this like things were good for us and now they're not for us. We feel like we're slipping. Um, I characterize it in the book by using Barbara Ehrenreich's you know famous book, The Fear of Falling, mm-hmm. about this the sort of essential quality of middle class life is being aware that there's something below you and you can slip into it. And the fear of falling is the quintessential thing about the Tea Party and the quintessential thing about Trump supporters, right? All these surveys that are coming out that are like, well, Trump supporters aren't the people who are the most broke and they aren't the people who had their jobs displaced by trade and they aren't the people who are losing their jobs to immigrants. They're, you know, sort of middle class white people who feel anxious. And it's like, exactly, that's that's real but like they're right to feel anxious they're not wrong just because they make a little bit more money than i do doesn't mean that they're not really assessing it accurately to say that like they could you know fall off at any moment that their retirement security could go up in smoke despite paul ryan they are not actually calling for social security to be privatized they like social security very much um, which is why Trump is doing so well with things like saying he's going to keep Social Security and he's going to, you know, make America great again. He's going to create jobs <clears> and stop letting these companies outsource. And he doesn't actually have a plan to do any of those things. Right, right. But he's saying the things that appeal to a certain feeling. And that, I think, is is real. And so the feeling on the other side, the people who are drawn to protests of the left, the people who are drawn to Bernie Sanders is the we are the 99% frame, right? It's like, we are all screwed. Some of us are more screwed than others, which is why you see people, you know, understanding that Black Lives Matter is important to more than just black people, that, like, actually justice for black people in America would, in fact, create justice for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. Um, which is why I'm going to reference the vision for black lives thing again and again and again and again, because it's so perfectly encapsulates right. that. And conversely, you know, the refrain is always when they get free, we all get free. Yeah, exactly. So. We gotta get free. Um, and um, I think that that kind of understanding, that understanding that like we're actually all screwed mm-hmm. and and that there are people at the top of this who have a lot of power yeah. who have who are deeply invested in us being screwed yeah 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 how do ordinary people begin to connect the dots in their own communities like where did that come out in your reporting in terms of just understanding oh wall street firms are tied this way to my livelihood and also to my kids college futures and that sort of thing the way that people connect the dots is talking to each other and that's why i think that these protests in public space are really important i also think that like this happening in the age of the internet is not an accident that you can actually connect with people and talk to people and watch things spread in sort of real time on the internet is helping people right you can find a research paper that you know the hedge clippers put out to profile a you know this and that hedge fund guy who's donating money to this election and that election in this charter school and when you see these things actually coming together in public right because like normally there's just a ton of information out there and how you would ever find these things is you know a very open question but when there's actually a bunch of protesters in your town saying you know occupy wall street and you go like, hmm, why are they mad at Wall Street? You can actually find out some things. You can walk down to the protest and find out some things. Um, you know, Occupy was this sort of famous center where, you know, you could walk down and, like, Judith Butler would be giving a lecture. Angela Davis would be giving a talk. Um, yeah. There would be, you know, 
people giving a teach-in about Glass-Steagall and also about, you know, the philosophy of anarchism. Like, it was, it's pulling people together in public space so they can actually talk to each other and connect with each other. Right. Um, used to be what the labor movement did, since we're on a labor movement podcast, right? Um, right? When, when, labor, when union density was a lot higher and unions actually invested in political education and community projects and actually brought people together... You know, there was that big long piece that I think you're using for ARG. Yeah. On, uh, yeah. you know, the decline of unions and the rise of Trump, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, and all, all forms of civic space. I mean, that's what our college right. campuses are. Right, been, exactly. Right? And, and right, when college campuses are only for the rich, um, then where does that public space go? Yeah. Um, then how do you talk about things? When our public schools are systematically dismantled, or defunded, and privatized, <laughs> right, then, you know, when you're you have kids who are you're trying to figure out how they're going to eat today. Um, you're trying to get, keep the cockroaches from falling off the ceiling on them. How are they going to learn about the history of, you know, civic engagement in America? So we have to actually sort of invent new spaces for this kind of togetherness to happen. Right. Um, now I'm getting really wonky, but I think this is really important. Um, yeah. And I think that the labor movement does best when it thinks about itself this way. Right. Which, you know, can bring us to the fight for 15 and, and all of these things. Yeah, going back to Occupy and the sort of symbolism as well as, like, the reality of having a, a shared space, like mm-hmm. a communal space. Yeah. I mean, in, in some ways that seems to be intention with this rise of online communication and sort of the atomization, right? I don't think it's intention. I think it's, an, you know, an effect, right? That, like... We have. I wrote this piece that I was actually just referencing um, the other day, um, a couple years ago for Rhizome, and it was about it was a response basically to this piece that had been in the Atlantic that was like, "Is Facebook making us lonely?" And I was like, "No, capitalism is making us lonely." Yeah. You know, privatization of everything and putting a dollar value on mm-hmm. communicating with your friends. Um, that is making us lonely. In fact, um, you know, Facebook could be great if it was not owned by a dude who just wants to make profits off of it. If it was actually set up as a public service, these things would be cool. And they could also and can and are, even with all of their flaws right now, still ways that occasionally bring people together. Right. Yeah, that they're, we're returning to occupation right now. That there is, I already referenced the people who are occupying City Hall Plaza in New York right now. Um, that are occupying outside of Homan Square in Chicago, that are occupying the city hall steps in Los Angeles, I don't think is an accident. I think that this is is a feature of this moment, that people are really feeling the loss of public space and public communication, and they're looking to recreate it and come up with ways to, you know, sort of be political and public together. And on this idea of being political and public together, bringing together a lot of different um, strands of society, like how do these new movements that you see deal with inequality within their own ranks or deal with divisions or what we might see superficially as divisions within yeah. their own ranks? I mean, sometimes well and sometimes badly is right, the, right. the flip answer to that question. But, you know, I think that like it goes back to what we were just talking about, which is like if we don't really know how to interact with each other in public, then we have to figure it out again. And so these things are tough. Um, when we're talking about this sort of leaderless movement, like everybody comments on the problems with that being that certain people get elevated to be leaders of the movement and the media is lazy and by and large will just keep calling the same person. And if that person doesn't pass the mic, then they are just 
you know, deemed the leader of the movement and their demands are the demands of the movement. Not that I'm referencing any specific people, but those of you who know me know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but this is a thing that happens over and over and over again. And I think the movement for black lives has done a good job of learning from the problems that Occupy had on that level. And I watch it sort of happening. Um, the vision for black lives document again, which I'm going to talk about is a collaboration of like 50 groups. So these are groups that have, you know, organization names, structures, in some cases, officers, um, people who you would call leaders, but they also have ways to collaborate with one another. Their structures are different. Um, these overlapping things, I think, are really useful in that, like, not everybody likes consensus process. In fact, a lot of people really hate consensus process. And so if you really, really, really want to wiggle your twinkly fingers, whatever, then you can actually form a group and that's how you make decisions and that's how you operate and you can figure that out in your space and other people are going to say, nope, and they're going to do it a different way. But you can still work together on something or on several things that overlap. Um, I think Chicago is the most interesting example of this, these kinds of overlapping groups and movements. Um, and there are still tensions. There are a lot of tensions. Mm -hmm. um, but we're watching it develop in a way that I think is, again, I think that the coming together in this moment versus the sort of ending of splitting, which, you know, could happen again. Like, we're this is not all predetermined stuff. This mm -hmm. is all going to mm -hmm. be determined based on what happens in the next few years. But I think it's a really interesting moment for that kind of figuring out how to interact and, and structure things. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the tensions that you were talking about, though, are you discussing the difference between, say, organizing tactics and different movement cultures? Or are you talking about say, sort of demographic differences, generational tensions? Um, or I mean, is it it's, it's really hard to talk about. Like, Fight for 15 is a movement that is was started and funded by a major labor union in partnership in a lot of places with community groups that already had an existing base. So the Fight for 15 is not a leaderless rebellion from below. Mm -hmm. That said, I do think that at this point it is a movement, and we are seeing people attach themselves to that number and that demand and put it into different places um, and really use it very effectively as an organizing tactic. You know, does that mean that there are not real tensions between, like, who is in charge of the Fight for 15? Is it SEIU International or is it these local groups who can make decisions based on what's best for their city um, versus what's best for the presidential election? Like, these are real questions and I don't have any good answers for them, mm -hmm. um, which is why I'm a journalist and not an organizer. Mm -hmm. But they're, they're being worked out and fought out in real time. Yeah. Um, and there are several examples of, of things like that in the book, of, of things sort of being fiddled with in real time to see how that happens. Yeah, and that must have been challenging for your reporting as things are moving on the ground and you are... Yeah, finding finding places to stop on some of these right. chapters was really tough. Like right. some when of them... Books, as we all know, are... Right, like the Wisconsin protests are, are over and there are still things happening in Wisconsin. There are still labor-related things and protests and actions. And I went to Wisconsin last winter and saw the, the Solidarity Singers who are still there every weekday in the Capitol singing songs about how Scott Walker is the worst. Um, bless them. Yeah. And, you know, but it was pretty easy to, to end that chapter somewhere. Whereas, like, writing about Black Lives Matter was like, well, this is 
totally still changing. It looks very different now than it does when I turned in the manuscript. Yeah. And it, you know, it looked different when I finished edits on the manuscript than it had when I turned in the manuscript. And at some point I kind of just had to pick places and write about those and, and you know, right. more more people than me are going to write books about this, certainly, and more people than me already have. Right, right. Or they're being written as we speak. But, I'm um, sure several of them are. As kind of a memorandum to those future um, chroniclers of these movements out there, I mean, you end on a note that sort of ends with a question, right? Or what, what will these new radicals look like? Or what form will this new radicalism uh, take uh, or you know how should we even begin to think about the next steps if we can even think about it on that level so do you have any like thoughts I don't know to not to close out with but to open up with I should say in yeah. terms of what we should look yeah. out for well right now people keep asking me like what's going to happen after Bernie Sanders that's the big thing that everybody is is asking Sarah, and saying I you know um, there is going to be a socialist uprising it's going to start in Chicago it's going to be led by Karen no like I don't know mm-hmm. um, I would love that to be true though I just make some great fan fictions right. Karen Lewis leading the revolution um, but like I think that what we're seeing again is it's like people are are fumbling toward organizations and structures and I think you know we're not at the point and people keep asking why we're not at the point to have like a a new left party in the US we're just not there Um, that said we're a hell of a lot closer than I thought we were because 12 million people just voted for Bernie Sanders in a Democratic Party primary Mm -hmm. Um, and it'll be interesting to see as like the polls and the media shift away from the like oh my god Donald Trump is going to win to like Hillary Clinton is definitely going to win and you're all stupid if you ever thought Donald Trump was going to win which like the narrative shift is like giving me whiplash it was so fast but that's going to mean people are going to feel more free actually to like vote for the Green Party or not vote or write in reparations now like uh, Assemblyman Charles Barron said he was going to do what's going to happen though I was just saying this to, to Dave Dan that like on day whatever, I don't actually know what date election day is this year, uh, November, whatever it is, we're all going to wake up and either the, you know, well, and Dave's response was, it's definitely going to be the second most unpopular candidate in history is going to have won because obviously the most unpopular one will be the one that lost. But we have historically unpopular people running for president right now. The vast majority of this country dislikes them both. Um, and so that is in itself kind of a great opportunity, which is that um, there's not that temptation to have the grace period that, like, people gave Obama to see, like, oh, is he going to fix things? Or are things going to get fixed? Which, coupled with, you know, the shock of the financial crisis really kind of stunned certainly the left for a while. And so right now, you know, all of these groups, with the exception of the people who really just got politicized around Bernie Sanders are already not working in the electoral arena and they're already thinking about beyond that and they're already thinking about like what does this thing look like you know five years from now what does this thing look like six weeks from now um the thing that i think is the most interesting is watching these lists of demands and how close out with a vision for black lives because it's wonderful and you should all go read it they have everything from like very specific pass this bill now short-term things to really big things like we don't believe that capitalism is good for the world and we want to end it Mm -hmm. um and so that kind of 
structure to these demands that are coming out means that that's how people are thinking. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. If you enjoyed all of that, you can come to my book launch in New York next week on August 25th at Housing Works or miscellaneous other book tour events. We will put a link to all of that fun stuff at the Descent website. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. This week, I had wanted to bring you an update on the Trump Taj Mahal workers we heard from not long ago on this show, as they are still on strike and still facing down Carl Ikhan, one of the poster children for Capitol's assault on labor in recent years, as well as they're, well, they're at the casino bearing Donald Trump's name. And then I read this piece by former belabored guest Adolf Reed Jr. at Jacobin and decided that I could kill two birds with one stone because it's an excellent piece that ties together the issues in the strike with larger issues facing U.S. labor no matter who becomes president in November. Making this fight a national issue on the order of those earlier key labor flashpoints should be a no-brainer, Reed argues, with the Taj Mahal workers' strike, which continues in the face of threats of closure of the casino and absolute refusal to take responsibility for driving the casino to the brink from Ikan and, of course, Trump. To them, it's just good business to buy cheap, extract profits, use the bankruptcy courts to extract even more while demanding that workers suffer the consequences. The Taj Mahal workers are immigrants and they are American-born, they speak multiple languages, and they understand the need for solidarity in all of them. They are, Reed argues, a rebuke to the kind of politics that, that sees fighting racism and fighting economic inequality as opposed, and a rebuke to another common idea that if we bring back manufacturing jobs, they will automatically be good jobs, that service jobs are just intrinsically worse. Reed calls this a mystification, and he writes, quote, Often enough, that mystification depends on a view of what kinds of people, disproportionately whites and men, held manufacturing jobs. A reciprocal was that service sector jobs often were disparaged as by definition as low wage and degraded, which, often, which also seemed compatible with the social position of the people who held them. Unite Here's success in creating and sustaining a pattern of stable, decent employment in the hospitality sector can help to debunk that mystification by giving us a basis for remembering that manufacturing employment, in fact, was low-wage, hazardous, and brutalizing until the emergence of industrial unionism in the 1930s and its proliferation and alliance with New Deal liberalism in the 1930s and 1940s. Casino jobs could be good jobs, too, if they had union protections, decent wages, benefits, and working hours. It's not the workers' fault that Carl Icahn seems determined to break them, and it's not their fault that Trump was a bad businessman to begin with. But the Taj Mahal strike, if I, as I have also argued, puts the lie to Trump's fake populism if people would only choose to look. So my ARG pick for this week is Neil Gross's The Decline of Unions and the Rise of Trump in the New York Times. The piece tries to wrap a class analysis around that hackneyed media trope of the white-collar working-class man that you've been hearing so much about throughout the campaign season. Basically, this is the locus of Trump's popularity, or so we're told by the media. To many, the blue-collar white dude is a profound metaphor for a nation looking to revivify itself through the political corpus of Trump's cult of personality. 
Actually, it's not really that dramatic, and Neil Gross does a pretty good job of dissecting what is underlying what appears to be a right-wing shift uh, among the white working class and what may actually be more of a signal of where the labor movement has gone. Gross links the rise of Trump to dwindling union representation across the American workforce over the past generation. He kind of counters this idea of uh, Trump as a media phenomenon with something that we don't hear much about in the media, unions. He argues that while the labor movement is now basically a shell of its former self, um, the rise of the right, therefore, is no accident because the two outcomes are actually deeply dependent on each other. And of course, the right has a supreme interest in doing to the labor movement what it's managed to do with great gusto over the past few decades, defeat it through the courts, through public campaigns, uh, through the slow deregulation of many industries. He reminds us, When we think about unions, what typically comes to mind are interest groups concerned with wages, benefits, and working conditions. But unions are also political organizations that, under the right circumstances, can powerfully channel the working class vote. And he actually cites uh, an early landmark study by sociologists Seymour and Martin Lipset, which found that, quote, the working class in most countries favors economic liberalism. It also displays an authoritarian streak, however. Using evidence from surveys, Lipset found blue-collar workers to be less committed to democratic norms like tolerance for political opponents, preference for rational argumentation over charismatic appeals, and support for the rights of ethnic and racial minorities. And this is not the usual soft bigotry of low expectations that we see in the media narrative. He has a pretty good theory as to why that might be. He argued that unions had the potential to counter such tendencies if infused with a democratic spirit, organized and run in a non-autocratic fashion with an eye to the greater good, a labor movement might inculcate civic virtues in its members, pushing them to think and vote in a more enlightened way. So Lipset and Gross are clearly oversimplifying here, and there are all sorts of complicated psychological and sociological and economic reasons, as well as cultural ones, why workers of a certain community might lean one way or the other. And uh, you might argue that class anxiety is part of it. Uh, You might argue that this particular moment in our political culture is part of it. And you might argue that Trump is just a compelling politician, but the principle still stands. People who are living in hardship may take political stances based on the types of risk and the levels of uh, threat that they encounter in their everyday lives, and there are pretty rational reasons for that. So the ability of unions to steer workers away from racism and oppressive ideologies, however, is really the nut of Gross's argument. Just on principle, there's something powerful about getting people to think about their place in the economy as a form of identity. Uh, We do live in an age of identity politics, but we don't often think of class as part of that. Gross also reminds us that the converse is also true. The right preys on exploiting divisions and turning people away from class solidarity and towards that typical divide and conquer scenario that we've seen throughout history and that we're actually seeing in not just America, but in a number of countries right now. In Europe, as in the United States, he writes working class men are a key constituency for the far right political parties that are now ascendant. In a recent study published last month of 16 European nations, the political scientist Christoph Arndt 
and Line Renwald found that union membership helps inoculate workers against the far right's message. While the far right has been able to gain ground even in countries like Sweden where unionization rates are high, in general, employees who are covered by collective bargaining agreements feel less threatened by the social changes that agitate far right ideologues. And so he ends with a powerful counterfactual, speculating on what might be and what might have been in this election season if unions had not declined so precipitously over the past few decades. Quote, if unions had anything like their former influence, how many workers would buy the empty economic promises Trump is making? So while watching this election season unfold, it's easy to get depressed by watching all this shameless parading of the white working class man as uh, some token for a foolish Borg brain that supposedly exists out there, perhaps serving as an alarming harbinger of a rising neo-fascist tide, but a leftist who is wondering whether the battle for the hearts and minds of working class America has been lost already, um, we shouldn't forget some basic truths. One, much of the working class is comprised of the very same people that Trump keeps alienating. They're poor people of color, women, public servants, etc. And two, it doesn't have to be this way, and it isn't. You might find yourself wishing that, you know, we could all just give people a pill to immunize ourselves against the spell of Trumpism. But we actually do already have a way to, as Gross puts it, inoculate working class people against reactionary ideologies. It's the labor movement. And if we've forgotten about the importance of the labor movement throughout American history in promoting progressive views through class mobilization, then that shows that we ourselves are victims of Trump's evil magic. He's tricking us into forgetting that the importance of class and labor struggles in shaping our lives and the importance of organizing. And the potential for that lives in all of us. And before we gawk at the tragic stereotypes of the forsaken blue-collar man, we should remind ourselves that these people are a lot closer to where we are than we think. And the more we can think and act in solidarity, the weaker the Trumps of the world become. And that does it for episode 110 of Belabored. Thanks for tuning in. Catch Sarah on one of her book tour dates. Tweet at us at hashtag belabored with your photos from said event or prominently displaying your uh, copy of Sarah's book. And keep us posted about strikes and other labor actions in your corner of the world. And you can also email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>